even down to like the troops on the ground, they're outfitting with like augmented reality goggles now. Okay, so that what they're seeing can be relayed sure. to the technology itself. Because, you know, we're obviously not quite at the point where we have like literal robot soldiers, but we're kind of cyborging them. All right. Hello, YouTube. Everyone, welcome to the show. Uh, this is the Angel Research Podcast. We're here, as usual, today to discuss the market's hottest stock stories and investment opportunities. We've got Mr. Jason Simpkins on the show with us today. I feel like I usually do the intro, but I, I kind of want to leave it up to you today, Jason. Why don't you kind of- To introduce t- myself? Yeah, yeah. Tell everyone you know who you are, what, you, what you're all about, what you do. Well, I am editor and investment director of Wall Street's Proven Ground and Secret Stock Files. Uh, both of which deal with military technology, though for Wall Street Proven Ground, not exclusively. We have other stocks in there. Uh, Secret Stock Files is more focused on military and government technology, but that also has a private sector or civilian application, so kind of a pathway to the mainstream, so to, to really kind of fatten up those, those profits because uh, government revenue is great, uh, you know, especially, you know, times of economic turmoil, recessions, you know, it's, it's very steady income. You can obviously get a lot of money from the Pentagon. They have an $858 billion budget in the upcoming year. But you really do want to be able to have technology that can also cross into the private sector and kind of revolutionize and change things there. So that's that's what I focus on. Okay, cool. Well, I think on the military side, at least, like the timing has almost never been better, or at least like, yeah. hasn't been better in decades. If I were to be perfectly honest with you, I'd say launching an investment service in February of 2022 in, in many respects was not the best timing. Sure. But at least <laughs> in this one aspect, yeah. uh, it, it was. Uh, because a lot of the conflict and a lot of the problems that I had been – talking about and honestly predicting for a while came to be. Yep. You know, I'd been, you know, talking about Russia for years. Yep. You know, obviously following that going all the way back to twenty fourteen when they first invaded Ukraine and, and annexed Crimea and all those things. I mean this is something I've been watching for a long time and it was it, it really finally you know blew up. Yeah, I mean you're definitely more in tune with this uh, than pretty much anybody that I know. Uh, so I think we're going to have some cool conversation today. I'm kind of excited to talk about some cool like military tech. Uh, I would kind of want to get your perspective on kind of like the modern military landscape and modern military strategy. Sure. Uh, and then maybe we could talk about maybe some uh, steady dividend p- playing stocks like I think you just mentioned and then maybe some growth stocks as well that kind of maybe some companies that are creating some you know emerging military tech. Uh, real quick disclaimer, as usual, uh, nothing that we say here today is, is personal financial advice. We can give you uh, you know, tools and information and insights, but we cannot uh, trade for you. Also, uh, like, comment, subscribe. Let us know uh, if you like us. Uh, let us know uh, what you want to know about the market, any stocks that you're uh, you know, following right now, and we'll do our best to respond. Um, the first thing I want to get into is something that I'm kind of just like been, I've been geeking out about for the past like, couple of months. And that's the uh, <clears throat> that is the final reveal of the uh, the the B twenty one Raider from sure. Northrop Grumman. Yeah, uh, I just kind of like am really nerdy about this stuff. Like watched Top Gun as a kid and all that stuff. Yeah. and I just find it fascinating that the vehicle looks really cool. I know it, uh, it does kind of have a lot of resemblance to the B two, but I think like it looks a little bit sleeker, kind of like a UFO. Exactly, it does. It has that kind of like it's well, it's got that gray kind of like glossy finish to it and then the windows on it and it's got kind of that convex shape that leads into the bat wing it's a little little more curvature to it it's not quite as angular as the you know the b2 uh which the b2 came out in 1988 
So it's been a little over 30 years since they unveiled a new bomber. So this one was due. Uh, it does look really cool. And I will put in for, for Northrop Grumman. I actually recommended that back in February, and that's up about 50% since then. I think it was I, – I was trying to remember if it was Northrop Grumman or Raytheon who you were, like, gung-ho about back in the day, and it might have been Northrop. Yeah, Northrop was uh, one of the first picks – or not one of the first, but for early in this year when, when Russia invaded – uh, and, you know, it looked like things were going to get really tough for the market in terms of being a safe haven play with a lot of upside. That was the first one I went to. Raytheon I did recommend a couple months ago. That one has been up and down. That's pretty good. Raytheon you can still get for less than $100 a share, which is a decent price for it. It has dropped down on, you know, some of the tougher days closer to like 90 which makes it kind of an even better bargain. But I could see that being worth over $150 a share by the end of the next year. So I think there's some, you know, similar upside there for, for Raytheon right now. But, yeah, so for the, the B-21 bomber, uh, looked really cool. Uh, the thing is, you just don't – you don't get that much specific information about it. Of course, it. they're it not going to tell you too much. It is one of the most highly classified programs, you know, in the military. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, there's kind of the standard stuff. We know it's going to be stealthier, whatever that means. You know, like the first – if the first stealth bomber was stealthy, this one, it's really going to – it's really going to hide from your radar now. Uh, but, you know, I think it, it, probably adjustments in terms of speed, maneuverability, probably improved range, being able to kind of strike anywhere. So that's that's the one thing that I was hearing is that it's it's much more efficient and cheaper to operate, and that's kind of one of the bigger, yeah, the, I could the bigger see selling that. points for yeah. it. Uh, so well, actually the, the bigger – the big thing they talk about, uh, it's actually the open systems architecture, okay? And that was the big main improvement that, like, the military officials and even, like, Northrop themselves, that, are, that they are actually most excited about. Because, like I said, when they built these bombers back in 1988, basically, like, the software, the technology in them was static. That's it. Like, that's, that's pretty much it. Unless you're going to go and, like, retrofit the entire thing. It wasn't, you know, you didn't have the same kind of technology we have today where, you know, everything updates and, you know, it's constantly being built built upon even after it's released. Okay, so open architecture, is that purely on the physical side of things, or that's more on the software side of things? So, like, what it means is that they can update it and adapt the software so that it can accommodate future weapons that haven't even been invented yet, basically. Or things that we know we have, like we've talked about hypersonic missiles and hypersonic glide vehicles, those aren't exactly finished. They're not fully developed by the military. They're going to be, but there's still no final, you know, construct of what exactly they are and, and how they're going to operate. But once they have that, they will be able to outfit them onto the B-21 without a problem. Okay. And so going into the future, it can evolve. And that's, that's the major thing. And on top of that, and here's where it gets really important. It's that it makes it compatible with other platforms, okay? So other fighter jets or jet formations or even ships in the ocean, satellites, uh, you know, ground stations, all of that stuff. Because this is, this is the big end game for the military right now. It's an overall project. It's called the Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And what it means is they connect all facets of the military, all branches, through a single cloud so that they're all able to communicate sure. and share information so that if, you know, you you do have ground forces that are targeting something, that target is 
information, the distance or location of it, its coordinates, can be immediately shared with bombers or fighters in the air and vice versa. Okay. So that you can have drones that deploy from these planes, from these bombers or jets, and that they can communicate and that their sensor data, you know, can be transmitted back to all of these other spheres in, in the combat battlefield and the combat space. Yeah. It's that that intermodality, that, that connection of everything. That, so, and that's what the big step forward here is technologically for the bomber. So is maybe like a goal ultimately to have kind of like almost like a network of these like B-21 bombers and then like other like sixth gen fighters that are almost operating like satellites then? Is that how it, how? Yeah, well, you're. Or at least I, they have some sort of networking capability. Exactly. I mean, you, you like I said, it's gotta be, they want it all interconnected. They, they want everything shared. They, and even down to, like, the troops on the ground, they're outfitting with, like, augmented reality goggles now, okay? So that what they're seeing can be relayed sure. to the technology itself. Because, you know, we're obviously not quite at the point where we have, like, literal robot soldiers, but we're kind of cyborging them. Yeah. We're giving them the technology, the wearable technology that can do the monitoring, even stuff like monitoring their, their vital signs, you know, their pulse, whether or not their body temperature, uh, whether or not they're going to be exhausted, how much they can, they can carry and all that kind of stuff so that that can all be, you know, analyzed. So that, that data can be, you know, filtered and organized and that they can take actionable insights from it the same way a corporation would, you know, the same way any run-of-the-mill corporation would analyze its advertising data or whatever else. They want to be able to kind of digitize this stuff, the, the analytics of it, you know, the same way you see, like, analytics creeping into sports. They, it, it, it's all going to be a part of that, that big data collection cloud and then, you know, basically, like I said, analyzing that information. And so that's, that's, that's the technological aspect of it. So, <clears throat> for example, here, yeah, like, what, are, what do we need the bombers for, too? Because this is another question that, like, I saw people start to ask because the price tag is enormous. It's over $200 billion over 30 years from development to deployment, basically. For uh, how many planes are they making? In, is that for, like, a set number of planes? Is it uh, Not uh, yet. So, like, they haven't, you know, ordered them yet. It'll probably be probably like 100. Like, I, I that's I read a hundred somewhere, um, but that's is that just the United States or are there multiple people yeah, that are purchasing? These, I don't I don't know that we would really sell these so much. The technology might be a little bit too sophisticated to kind of put out there. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you want to give people that much insight in, into your stealth fighters, sure, or your stealth bombers rather. I don't know if they're going to be. You know, like the way, I mean, Lockheed Martin, you know, the F-35 is everywhere. They're selling, you know, that's in Israel, it's in Sweden, it's, yeah. it's Finland, it's everywhere. I don't know if the bombers are going to have that wide of a market or if they're going to be made that available. They they could be. Sure. Um, I don't know that they will be. But wasn't that a thing with, like, the F-22 is that, like, the that one can't be sold is it the f-22 like like there's like basically like a like there's law written there's u.s law that says that we can't share that right well all and, that stuff goes through the state department okay you know the state department has to sign off on any foreign technology military technology sale uh and so if they look at it and they go this is too vital to our national security uh they're not going to approve that sale gotcha so I, I, that'll probably be the case for for the stealth bomb Okay, so the B-21 is technically a 6th-gen bomber. Yes. We're, we're, we haven't gotten the 6th-gen fighters yet. This is the world's first 6th-gen aircraft. Correct. What makes it 6th-gen 
is it like a specific technology that makes it sixth gen, or is it? Or did we just draw some kind of arbitrary line somewhere? It's kind of nebulous. It's like generations of people. Yeah. You can say that there was an era, but like you know, if if technically you know Gen X ended if people born in 1979 and millennials began with people who were born in 1980. Is someone born in 1980 and 1979, are those two people really different? Yeah. No. Like, it, it becomes kind of a thing. So, they, it is kind of an arbitrary cutoff point. What kind of defines it is a lot of what the technology that I was uh, talking about. It's kind of like, that's that's kind of the goalpost in terms of what they feel like they've done to advance it. I mean, they're calling it a sixth-generation fighter. Yeah. There's no objective body, technological or government, that's passing judgment and going, yes, that's sure, yeah, of that course. qualifies for yeah. sixth generation. Yeah. We've truly made it. No, it like they said this is sixth generation. And I mean I think that's you know, that's a lot of that's it's know, marketing. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah, a lot of branding. It's yeah. a lot of like saying something. It was interesting actually to see how they kind of did the reveal. Like it felt very like uh like Silicon Valley, the way that yeah. like it felt like a Tesla like there's product an element reveal. to that, and like I said, because there's a lot of money, and you wanna you kind of want to convince you know not just the government but the American taxpayer that they're getting their money's sure. worth, right? Yeah. And so like to that point, you know what these are really for? Because then people also ask me like we were talking about drones and stuff like that, and it's like well if drones are cheaper and they are, uh, you know drones can be anywhere from two to five million. An expensive one is like ten million dollars, as yeah. opposed, you know, to to what this is. Or, or they could be like the t- the toy ones that they're using in Ukraine that are like, you know, it's a hundred bucks. Yeah, 100 yeah for exactly. Anywhere less than a million for some, it. you know, exactly. You you can really make some really kind of rudimentary ones for I cheap, crazy fucking it. video, dude. Of like, they're dropping grenades on this guy in the yeah. trench. Do you see that video? <laughs> yeah, and he's like, they'll drop a grenade in the trench. He tosses a grenade out. It blows. He like runs a little bit. And they hover over him. They drop another grenade on him. Like, I never, I thought like, I, I figured it was just like, okay, they strap some C4 to him and they do some kamikaze shit. I did not think that they were literally like dropping hand grenades onto onto dudes. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. And, you know, that's going to be a, a big part of combat moving forward and, and this kind of future combat that we're getting into just... <laughs> Uh, this week, Ukraine, they have now their own uh, drones that they, they're building inside Ukraine uh, that they're using to strike. They can get now as far as uh, Moscow. They uh, bombed a few airfields and military bases, bomber bases uh, in uh, southern Russia. It's kind of southeastern or <coughs> southwestern Russia, I suppose. Um, and so that was kind of a big deal for them because that was as, as far as they've got in, you know, in terms of an attack on Russia. Like, I don't Russia really wasn't prepared for that. They didn't really think uh, Ukrainian munitions could reach that far, yeah. but they did. Didn't they do some sort of attack with, like, uh, not the aerial drones, but the, uh, like, marine drones? Uh, I was reading some, that something like that, that they basically sent a bunch of, like, autonomous, like, vehicles to just, like, kind of kamikaze their, their way on some of the, uh, some of Russians, uh, like, assets in the Black Sea. They did. They did. They did. They, they've been sending drones and small, like, swarms of drones towards Crimea, and there's a, the, the reason Crimea is really valuable to Russia is because it is, it has Sevastopol, and it's a major port, and that is basically Russia's only, one of Russia's only year-round ports. It doesn't freeze over. Because, you know, Russia has, you know, some key ports on the north and, you know, up in its northeast. But they're not they, operational. They get incredibly cold. Okay. And so there's, you know, there's I, 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 there's the one out in Finland, close to Finland, that they basically took from Finland was, uh, I, I think that one, that one lets out into the Bering Sea. I don't know if that one freezes over, but 
that's that's their access point. That's their main access point to the Black Sea and, and you know, thus the, the entire Mediterranean theater. Yeah. Um, so that's why that's so strategically important for them and why they were so, you know, keen on taking it. Um, and so that's that's going to go on. They're, I, don't, I know they shot down a drone that was attacking there. Russia did. Uh, that's going to be a cat and mouse game that continues because now that Ukraine has liberated Kharkiv and Kherson, and they've kind of, you know, forced Russia back past the Dnieper River, and they're kind of been pushing them out of that uh, eastern part of the country. You know, pretty much Crimea is the, you know, really last crown jewel. I mean, it's like the last main piece of territory left to to reclaim from Russia. So they're going to be trying to do that for sure. Um, but with respect to uh, getting back to the bombers, what I wanted to mention, because, like, it is a fair question to ask, like, why are you spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars per unit on a bomber when you could get these drones for cheap. Yeah, I was going to kind of I wanted to pick your brain about like how is that going to change warfare? Does it make these fight like these so these fighters won't. obsolete? And or? I'll tell you why because you need the bomber as a part of our nuclear deterrent. And like that's the big that was kind of the main thing that uh the defense secretary uh Austin Lloyd or Lloyd Austin. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get the, get the video <laughs> yeah. team to, to put the correct... Uh... But uh, the American Defense Secretary, he was mean about being a deterrent. And yeah. Because you're not going to use drones as a swarm or individual to bomb a nuclear base. Okay? You're, they're too well guarded, they're too well defended, and they're too remote. They are kept up in, like, the Arctic Circle. They are kept in hardware, like the United States. It's in middle America. It's the place where it would be hardest for our adversaries to get to. You'd have to cross the whole of our country one way or another, breach a coastline you, to, you know, get through our border defenses and all that stuff and get all the way over middle America if you want to actually take out our nuclear capability. Yeah. Same is true with Russia and China. They don't put these things in easy-to-access places, whereas drones, limited range, uh, in most cases, and I could see the technology advancing to the point that this isn't the case, but like right now it is. And if you have a drone, you need a drone operator. And so that drone operator at least has to be somewhat close to sure. to the drone itself in order to operate it. And then it only is so far, and it, and it can only pack so much of a punch. Like you were kind of talking about with the, the, the small drones, like dropping a grenade, that's not going to do anything. Yeah, of course. Even the drones they sent to those airfields in, in Russia that, you know, damaged some bombers, they blew up a fuel tank. That was about the limit of the damage. They didn't cripple the base. Yeah. They didn't take out the entire fleet of, of fighter jets, you know. They did some damage, and they sent a message. But... In terms of actually neutralizing a threat, that's what that's what the bombers are for. It's so that if we get in a nuclear war or a, a war with a nuclear adversary, you know, the very first thing we're going to want to do is go and bomb their nuclear bases and try to prevent sure. take that off the table. I mean, we've already seen with Russia threatening to use you know quote unquote tactical nukes or whatever. You know, they're not shy about threatening to use nuclear weapons. You have to take those threats seriously. And so that's that's why the B-2 bombers exist. That's why you need a bomber that is sophisticated enough to pierce the most highly contested environments. You need it to be able to fly over the whole of China to get to a remote base out in the middle of nowhere that is highly fortified, that is well defended with anti-aircraft munitions and stuff like that, to, to you know, kneecap. They're a nuclear arsenal. And that is the role. That, along with 
if we wanted to drop the bomb, they would be, you know, there's multiple ways that that would be delivered. They would be the principal way of delivering the ammunition. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about some drone companies that mm-hmm. might be worth investing in. Uh, there's there's two that I'm I'm aware of, and maybe you maybe you have some more that you'd be willing to reveal. Um, but when I used to follow this space a while ago. Uh, uh, AVAV, mm-hmm. Arab Ironman. Yeah, they make what? This is it the Switchblade? They make the Switchblade and Puma, uh, and I th- and probably probably at least one other. There's a, there's a few, but the Switchblade and Puma are the are some of the, the bigger ones. Yeah, are they like what? I know that they also do like some like they did like EV charging back in the yeah, day. They, or... Yeah, they had like uh, electric car charging stations. Uh, what's what's that business? I haven't looked at them in years. I what's haven't that? either. I had AVAV in. I'm pretty sure it's the Wall Street's Proven Ground portfolio, or it may have been back when I was doing the Wealth Warrior. But I sold out of that. Like it was, it wasn't like a huge gain, but it was like a like a 25, 50% gain on there. I sold out of. It. I haven't followed them since. Um, but that's a that's a good place to start for drones. There's no doubt about it. Like if you're like if you want to invest in drones. That's as good a place as any to start. I'd imagine the second company is going to be Kratos. Yeah, that's the, that's the other one. With the, Kratos is, is huge. Kratos, I, I, I do have a holding in secret stockpiles. Uh, so, and Kratos is the one where they're doing a lot of the fun stuff with, like, with the aero-environment drones, a lot of those are hand-launched. Yeah, or, yeah, those, those yeah, are definitely like, more like toy. I would consider smaller, them closer like toy drones. Yeah, a lot of their use, like, the Army uses them for reconnaissance. They're, they're easy for, like, a soldier or a unit to pack in, like, a rucksack or bring along, and they can, you know, throw it or launch it, and it'll do recon for them and occasionally deploy some, you know, munitions if it comes down to that. With Kratos... They do a little bit more sophisticated stuff. First, they started out making decoys uh, for combat training. Uh, and then they went on to now make basically drones with offensive capability. Uh, the most prominent one right now is the Valkyrie. Uh, that's, I think that's, that's about 5 to $10 million a unit. Uh, those do, depending on what you arm them with, uh, they can they can do any number of things like like I said the, a lot of forward reconnaissance. Uh, you can equip them with sensors to uh, not just find but jam enemy defenses, uh, enemy signals. Yeah. It's kind of like jamming tools, uh, and they can also deploy munitions. They just in September unveiled another small drone. One of the smaller ones is called the Airwolf, um, and that actually deploys the switchblade. Uh, from air environment, so okay. it's like a drone within a drone. Yeah, it's yeah. like a Russian uh, Russian nesting doll situation. Now yeah. we're getting to where drones are deploying other drones. Sure, it's almost like flying. You have like we're gonna have these like flying aircraft carriers in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They have like a uh, you know Kremlin or Gremlin swarms, which are like really small wolf pack, where they can. De- and that's the thing they they want to deploy those from jets, uh, like the F thirty five, as. Basically, as a, as like a as a as a wingman, yeah. as kind of you know. Well, you, they, we were talking about this idea of like companion, yeah, companion a loyal aircraft. wingman they call it. Yeah, and yeah. and I've seen some like some kind of like designs or like you know blueprints on the six gen fighters, and I, I guess maybe they. I don't know if they're going to do that with the B twenty one as well, where basically you would just have like you know five or six autonomous drones yeah. that are surrounding that and, and, and they're each performing like specific functions like I guess what one would like, I don't you know. think you would do it with the stealth bomber because the bomber the whole point of the stealth bomber is to be stealthy okay it's to fly in 
bomb whatever target you need to bomb and get the hell out of there with it. You know, you're not, you, you don't want to be in a situation with those planes where you're in any kind of dogfight. I yeah. mean, that's what the fighters are for. Yeah. So, like, that's where you would see that in fighter groups. And what they have with, like, the Valkyrie and other Kratos drones is they go under the plane's wing just like a missile would, and they deploy from there. Okay. Uh, and they can fly ahead like a little buddy. And what they'll do is, like I said, they can go. They can first, they can identify and reveal enemy anti-aircraft weapons, uh, you know, rocket artillery from the ground or, you know, any kind of air defenses like that. They can... Could like, they act as, like, a flare almost and, like, take a take a shot? Like, they, would they ever be used defensively? They can deploy their own ordnance. Okay. It, like I said, it's not going to be the most powerful, but they can absolutely do it. So, like, I mean, ideally, it would be great if they did fly ahead and destroy whatever they found, uh, and maybe they will, but... There's a more likely chance even to get shot down, though. But even if they get shot down, they've already done the job of mapping out the area with cameras and sensors. Sure. And like I said, you know, once that all gets into that cloud, that's all been shared now. That data is there. So now the flight group can use it. They know where the defenses are. They can better target them before your $78 million F-35 flies into harm's way you've lost maybe a $5 million drone, okay? So it's kind of like it draws that fire, you know? And you save not only that, but you save the life of the pilot, prospectively. Yeah. So that's that's what's really important about that loyal wing. We're short technology. on pilots, right? Yeah, it's a full, well, always, yeah. I mean, and, you, you know, you want to, that takes a lot of training. That's skilled yeah. combat. And, you know, you don't want to be sending flags home to parents. Well, you got these drone companions that can go out and be a force multiplier and that can assist them in all the little things that they need to be able to do in terms of identifying and neutralizing enemy air defenses. And so that's really important for, uh, you know, that, that kind of like military drone space. Is anybody like even close to us in terms of this kind of like capability with like the networking. I mean, obviously we have a ton of firepower. We have like more carriers than like the rest of the world. Like our Navy is like bigger right. than the rest of the world's combined. Is any, like, I feel like we, you hear a lot of like uh, kind of FUD about America and it's almost like, it's like trendy in the U S to be like, Oh, America's going to shit. This country's good. Like, kind of on the way down, China's going to come and, mm -hmm. and, and be that they're going to be the, the new superpower uh, is, Part of me just think that's all. That's all just like a load of BS. Because... Well, I mean, America's the world leader in military technology, period, and it's not even close. The like the advances, a lot of the advances China's made recently came on the back of intellectual property and stuff that they stole from us. Yeah, I mean, they've been very good at deploying that asymmetric warfare, and that's that's kind of you know their ball game and where they're at with it. They they realize that they can conduct cyber attacks or use drones, cheap drones themselves and stuff like that. Or they've put a, you know, like they've done a lot to develop hypersonic weapons. They're ahead on that technology in particular. Okay. But when it comes to actual, like, you know, arms development, you know, no, you're not going to top the United States. One, because, like I said, the pool of money is deep. It, it, this year alone, $858 billion. You know, within the next few years, we're going to have a defense budget that's over a trillion dollars. So... That's more, and even even if you take into account the military spending that China almost certainly doesn't tell us about, it's still 
more than anyone else in the world, and by a lot. I mean, the United States really spends more on defense than probably the next 10 nations combined. That's how much money we spend on defense. And then of that pool of money, because, and if you really do believe, if you really do believe in the free market, if you really do believe in private sector solutions, then for as much of that money, of that giant $858 billion pool, you think might be getting wasted uh, by defense contractors or whatever. You have to believe it's being put to more efficient use than the money that's being developed in communist countries and state-run countries where you don't have that free market competition. Here, there's a lot of conglomeration in the defense sector. You have giants, but they compete with each other. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Leidos, Boeing, there's a lot of giant defense firms, General Dynamics, out there that are competing for all of these contracts, that are competing to make these missiles and these planes and to see who can outdo each other. Sure. And, you know, they are accessing and they are able to pay some of the brightest minds in the industry, some of the smartest rocket scientists you're going to find out there. You know, they have access to those guys. And, you know, you look at that intellectual pipeline. Russia cannot compete with that. Like, Russia's already experiencing, like, in particular, brain drain. You know, you, you get that a little bit in China, too. It's like, do you want to live and work in China, yep. or do you want to get the hell out of China? Like, do you want to live in America, it, despite all of its problems? Most people still do. I think we all agree it's a pretty livable space here. You know, I'm doing all right. So, for all of its faults, you have that. You have those liberal universities. You have, I mean, classically liberal when I say that, uh, which is to say free speech and free thinking. You know, you're allowed to criticize. You're allowed to think out loud. Not so much in a place. So, like speak, that. speaking of, and kind of while we're on the topic of China, like China has some of its own issues going on right now. There's uh-huh. some social unrest there. There's kind of this, like the the housing crisis, which is kind of like compounding into a debt crisis. Uh, what do you, what, how do you feel about China's like military, like not military, but their ec- their economy for the next like you know five years or so? Are they going to just be busy with their own shit or I've never been a China guy nor a China expert. Yeah. Um just simply for a lot of the reasons that I just said that I there were a lot of guys like when I first got into this industry around 2007 2008 China was all the rage. Yeah. People wouldn't shut up about China and I worked with a couple at least one really big China guy but I could never Like as a place to invest like Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like let's invest in these Chinese state-owned companies. Well, no. That's actually not a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and it, one, I mean, it's difficult, but it's also it's it's just it's dicey. I just don't. I've never been about investing in a place that's communist. That for all intents and purposes, is yeah. state controlled and single party controlled and autocratic. You know, forget all any kind of like, you know, crimes against humanity or whatever ethnic cleansing with the weak. I don't care about it. It's just it's just I don't I don't see it as a as an investor friendly realm. Sure, you know, like. That's what capitalism is for. That's 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 why you invest here in in companies that list in New York as opposed to Shanghai. Like because you never know what they're gonna do. They're unpredictable. They can on a whim, like they did, shut down their entire economy, but really shut it down and have these enforced lockdowns and lock their citizens up and enforce these very strict codes of conduct. And, you know, that does breed unrest. That does breed instability when you have these. A lot of the things like, I mean, obviously, Russia and China are two different things, and especially where they're at and their influence and what their assets. But 
one thing that, that is true of every totalitarian regime, and what you saw with Russia, is when you live in a bubble, that tends to come back and bite you. And one of the big things about this Russia invasion, which has failed, it's that they believed, and specifically Vladimir Putin believed, and the people around him believed, this would be easy. This would be a cakewalk. They bought into their own propaganda that Russia had this superior global power of a military that was capable of standing toe-to-toe yeah. with the United it was, States. It was like a myth that was hanging around for yeah, decades. Yeah, they, they drank their own bathwater for so long about, oh, our, our, our military is so strong and Ukraine's so weak and the Ukrainians don't even want to be Ukrainians and they're really closet Russians and they're going to be happy when we show up with our tanks and they're going to welcome us and it's not really a nation state. They're not even going to try to defend themselves. They bought into all that. And it was all completely wrong. And you can see that happen in China, too, where when all you do and all you're allowed to do is repeat propaganda and tow the, the company line of your single party governance and kowtow to your leaders, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, then the information becomes corroded. It becomes unreliable. You have people who are afraid to stand up to party bosses. You have people who are afraid to stand up to dictators. You get these guys who are surrounded by yes men and surrounded by party people who only are ever going to tell them what they want to hear. And that leads to problems. All right. So I want to wrap up soon, but uh, I feel like this is a decent segue. Uh, you're, you're talking about propaganda. And I actually I wanted to ask you about some of your uh, like your information sources, because the kind of the. Uh, you're in a you're you are in a space that could be highly propagandized. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your information feed? Like, where do you try to get things that are that are unbiased? Are you trying to are you assuming that most of your shit, like most of the stuff that you're reading, is biased, and you're trying to read from a bunch of different? No. So the first thing I did, and when I first wanted to launch a service about defense contractors, the first thing I started doing was going to these kind of trade shows, uh, and what you'll get there. I was always kind of like a weird guy walking around because I, they, they almost kind of sensed I didn't really belong because there's two types of people there. There's, there's military people who are in acquisitions and make the decisions about contracts and contract awards and what gets bought. And then you have the sellers who are trying to convince those people to buy their products and to give them contracts. Yeah. And then there's me walking around just trying to familiarize myself with all of their stuff and all their equipment. And honestly, though, they were all so happy to talk to me. They, you know, they were all... Like, the engineers that work on this stuff from all kinds of labs, you know, I talk to guys at Hopkins Lab. Like, there's, there's all these fun things, and honestly, they're dying to talk about it. And the same thing is actually somewhat disconcertingly true of our military brass. Like, yeah. they're, they're kind of not shy about the main points. Like, if you get down to details and patents and all this stuff, they're not going to want to talk about that. There's stuff they're going to keep behind a curtain. But when it, be, when it comes to, like, the overall strategy and what it is they're trying to do, they are crystal clear about it. You know, I, I would sit in these discussions, and generals will go up there, and they'll tell you, the point blank, they're like, we're preparing for near-peer conflict with China, which is acting aggressive here, and this is how we're going to do it. Here's what we think our vulnerabilities are. And that gets back to what I was talking about in terms of being a democratic state. It's that... They'll talk about that. They welcome that conversation, whether it's within the Pentagon or within academia. They welcome discourse about 
our vulnerabilities, about what's working and what's not working. They're open to rethinking things. They aren't married. It's not just like, well, that's the way we've always done things, where there's a lot of that in other you know, places with like Russia or whatever, where it's just like, that's just what we always did. We never thought to change. We never saw a reason to reevaluate. Nobody ever asked that question. In, in these areas, they're really willing to talk about this stuff and to discuss it. And so I'll talk to them, and they're, they're fun people to talk to. And that's, that's where I try to, try to get it. When it comes to, like, any kind of reading, you know, you, you take kind of everything with a grain of salt. But also, I mean, the facts are, are pretty there. They're, they're just kind of there at times. You know, when you see, you know, Russia clearly failing in its objectives and in active retreat, I mean, yeah, you're losing. Yeah. I mean, it's not propaganda. You're getting your ass kicked. When they say, oh, well, it's NATO enlargement that's forcing to do this, that's nonsense. Because NATO never, no one ever joined NATO at the barrel of a gun. So you're the one invading Ukraine. So that's nonsense. Uh, like, that, you know, you just kind of have to be your own kind of critical thinker. And I think that's just good in general, no matter what space you're dealing with as an investor or anything else. You, you know, you kind of got to, you know, be open to that, have a kind of a critical, critical view of these things. You know, you can't just take things at face value, but, you know, sometimes a spade is just a spade. Sure. Like, well, it sounds like at least going to the horses, getting it straight from the horse's mouth is at least one decent way to get information feed. And obviously you are an information feed as well uh, for anybody <laughs> who wants to learn more about this stuff, and particularly in terms of like getting investment, uh, you know, not, not necessarily direct investment advice, sure. but, you know, information and insight and all that stuff. Um, real quick before we go, uh, gun to your head, your top uh, military uh, dividend stock. Like one of the, the big guy, if you could pick one, one company. Uh, I guess I'd go... I'd Man, I, I guess I could. Yeah, and we started with Northrop Grumman. I'll stick with Northrop Grumman. Okay, and uh, growth stock. Um, you don't you don't have to reveal it because I know that you kind of this is kind of what you do and what your what your your subscribers pay for. But it, uh, is there a particular company that you're you think has like a really high growth potential in the, in the aerospace and defense industry right now? Oh yeah, there's a few, but those are secret stock files. Those are the secret stocks. I can't give the secret stocks. Away. Okay, cool. We, I mean, I, I, said, I mean, like I said, I, te- tease them for us. Uh, well, I, we could talk. We could talk about Kratos because I've already mentioned Kratos. And I, sure. I, I'll, one more thing I'll say about Kratos, which is really interesting. And like when I talk about secret stock files, what really for me qualifies is a company that you know has this this military angle that is in you know government development and partnerships. But also, like I said, applies to the private sector. And in addition to making all these drones, uh, one thing Kratos uh, actually produces is something called leader follow follower technology. And it started out as a military technology in Iraq. And it's basically like you have one car one in a convoy, one truck that is driven by a human. And then all the other trucks behind it follow that autonomously without any drivers at all. And they started using those in Iraq because uh, IEDs had become a problem, roadside bombs. Sure. And they could limit the casualties with fewer drivers. And then you also have to worry about, like, less driver fatigue, Wait, less that, sustainability. I'm, I'm a little wouldn't – wouldn't you want the truck in the front to be the one without the person in it? Or? Yeah, but someone's got to direct the convoy. <laughs> yeah, okay. But the point about this is that uh, earlier this year – there was because uh, we've had so many uh, labor shortages, and one of those labor areas where labor shortages have been really acute is trucking. Uh, there's yep. a shortage of 
uh, truck drivers who are commercially licensed. And so there is a collective, the uh, Minnesota Dakota Farmers Co-op, and it was sugar beet harvesting season. And at the peak of sugar beet harvesting season, you need 50,000 trucks a day to move the beets from their stockpiles to the processing facility. And so they started using the Kratos leader follower technology mm. to pile all these beets into these trucks and convoy them to the processing plant because they didn't have the drivers yeah. for it. It happens like that often where you have this kind of like military uh, you know, application for technology and then the, the and commercial then it, sense exactly, sector starts it, it to starts adopt to it. It starts to pick up on it and it, ten- it can happen slowly. Uh, but it does happen. And I think you're going to see more of that kind of stuff going forward, yeah. you know. And like I said, a lot of the places that we're looking at now in the military with all we talked about here today about basically cloud data and analyzing it and processing that data and then finding actionable insights from it, that's all extremely relevant to the corporate world as well. And that's why you have, you know, companies like Palantir, which is another company I've talked about that does that data analysis and does, you know, makes a whole thing out of not collecting data itself, but taking the data that you've collected and have no idea what to do with and finding actionable insights for it, finding a way that can make your company more efficient, that can improve your processes, because that's that's what that's all about. Like, why else collect, you know, the data? You can collect data just to have it, and a lot of companies are doing that right now. What are you going to do with it? And so there's a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of technological overlap right now with the way that the military is going in terms of cloud computing, augmented reality, uh, you know, all this stuff that we've talked about, edge computing. Yep. And with what other industries are also trying to do to a different end in the private sector. And you're looking for all the possible ways to to profit off yeah, that. Yeah, like ideally, you're not. I don't think I could get every stock to overlap, but that's. I feel like that's really the sweet spot for for a company. All right, Jason, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we'll uh, see you next time.